0: If I could take this morning your thoughts, my thoughts that you had from the time you were a youth up to the present day, forget your deeds, just your thoughts, and I could project them on these screens, a lot of you would never want to show your face in this room again.
1: Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the book of Romans and are looking at the depravity of man as identified in chapter 3. As we pick up, Pastor Brogy talks about the amazing Word of God, the Bible, the only truly holy and perfect book written by God through men in whom the Holy Spirit moved. The Jewish nation
0: had the inspired, infallible, eternal Word of God. What an incredible blessing from Moses on Mount Sinai all the way down through these Jewish apostles who supervised the giving of the New Testament. They were the stewards of God's Word. Now, the Apostle Paul has already taught us in the second chapter that their possession alone of the Word of God doesn't make them Christians. However, having a copy of the Bible was an incredible privilege for these people. Do you own a copy of the Bible? Do you realize how great a privilege it is to have in our tongue not just one translation but multiple translations? Of the entire Bible, where many of God's people through the world have nothing, or maybe just a book of the Bible? A story I love to read my grandkids is the story of Mary Jones, and it's the story of this Welsh girl that I read to them again this week who lived in the 19th century, and she so earnestly wanted a copy of the Bible in the Welsh language. She would hear it read in church and as she learned to read and she had the privilege to read the only Bible in the community, her heart just reached out for it. And at the age of nine, for the next six years until she was 15, she saved and saved and saved this poor little impoverished girl. She did everything that she could to earn a Bible and then she walked 25 miles to get a copy of the Word of God today we just blow it off. We have in our hands this morning God's Word. You know, recently I had a five-year-old in my office, and he perfectly quoted John 3.16, and I thought it wasn't until I was 18, as far as I know, that I ever even heard John 3.16. Some of you have grown up in Christian homes and You've had parents and grandparents who have taught you the Bible from childhood, and you just take it for granted. You say, well, what else is new? And it's become so familiar that you have a cavalier attitude towards the Bible you hold in your hands. I want you to see the impact of what Paul is saying here in verse 2. What advantage has the Jew? Great in every respect. First of all, that means of primary importance, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. I want you to imagine the world as one big, massive island in solid pitch blackness and despair. And there's only one bridge off of that island into paradise. And you alone have the spotlight to shine the light on that bridge so that people can get out of that darkness and into paradise. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying the Jew has the spotlight. God has entrusted them to lead a lost world, to be a light to the Gentiles, just as we today as Christians have been given that spotlight. But do you know what we're doing with the spotlight today? We discussed it last week if you were here. We're shining the spotlight on needles and haystacks. We've turned our discussions into theological trivia. And we've spent our our, our time arguing and debating trivia that is really secondary in nature and has very little to do with getting people saved and helping people to mature in their faith and still others thinking that it's too offensive. They no longer open as pastors the word of God on Sunday morning because they don't want to be too heavy. And what we are doing is in contradistinction to what Jesus has called us all to do. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Paul is telling his Jewish brethren, listen, you have the spotlight. Take Jonah, Jonah who had been given the evangelistic light, and God says, go to Nineveh. Remember, Nineveh at that time were Israel's enemies. Go to Nineveh and share with them the gospel. And of course, he runs in the opposite direction, and it's not until he spends three days and nights on that foam blubber mattress and then has an amphibious landing that God has his attention and he preaches the simple truth of salvation and one of the greatest revivals in all of history takes place. He shone the light on the bridge to the Ninevites. But in Paul's day, much like in our day, the Jewish people were busy playing church games and they missed their advantage. And that's always, that always happens when people turn inward. And when they turn inward, they typically turn self-righteous. By the way, there's one important thing we must do as parents if we are to instill vital Christianity into the hearts of our children. You know, I spent over a decade in campus ministry, and I can count on one hand those kids that came from Christian Bible-believing homes where they were passionate for Christ, spent time in the Word of God, and were deeply committed to the Great Commission. In fact, you know what I discovered? It's those kids from those homes that were typically the most apathetic for Jesus Christ. You say, how can you be apathetic for Jesus Christ? Well, when the light goes inward... When people set up these big walls and their family becomes king instead of Jesus being Lord and they put these protective walls all the way around them such that they exclude a lost world, it builds a sense of apathy into the hearts of those children. Fifteen years ago, I selected Awana for the discipleship program for our kids, and I did it for two reasons. Number one, it would be instructive to those children that have met Christ, but it would also challenge them to go outside of themselves into a lost world. And if your kids aren't a part of it, then they are missing out. But when Christianity becomes so me-focused... When you come just to sit, soak, and sour, and you lose perspective, then your children will not see vital Christianity. And in the words of Chad Walsh, who said it so well in the 1950s, you will inoculate your children with a mild disease of Christianity to keep them from getting the real disease. So, objection number one, what about God's covenant with his people? Then he deals with objection number two. What about God's faithfulness? What about God's faithfulness? Verse three, what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Now follow follow closely the objection that Paul anticipates from his Jewish brethren. A Hebrew person would stand up and say, okay, Paul, you're saying that the Jewish people are in unbelief. But don't forget, God made a covenant with us. God made a unilateral, unconditional covenant with Abraham. Are you saying that because of the unbelief of the Jews, that that will nullify or cancel the covenant that God made with his people? Just because we are not faithful, are you saying that that means God is going to break his covenant? In essence, they're raising a question. They're saying, we got you, Paul. For you to say that God is going to break his covenant, then you are saying that God is less than truthful, that God is immoral, and you cannot say that. And Paul's answer is meganoita, may it never be, one of his favorite expressions in this epistle. Uh, To capture the emotion of it, a number of translations render it differently. Absolutely not, of course not. Not at all. By no means perish the thought. Don't be ridiculous. Now read further into verse 4. May it never be, rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Paul is saying, even if every person on the face of the earth were an outright liar, when God says something, he means it. Many of you know that God made some unconditional promises to the Jewish people, some that are still yet to be kept. And when we come to Romans nine, ten, and 11, Paul will describe them in great detail. But for right now, Paul substantiates his point that God is faithful in spite of the faithlessness of people because God remains faithful to himself. Paul explains it with an Old Testament illustration. Notice, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now, we can't really appreciate that quotation unless we know where it came from and the context of it. Now, in the Bible, in the New Testament, whenever you see the phrase, as it is written, you know, I hope, that it is introducing an Old Testament quotation. And just so you don't miss it, different publishers do it different way, but the Holman Foundation, the New American Standard, they put Old Testament quotations in all capital block letters. You see that? In addition, if you have the New American Standard with marginal notes, you will see that this verse is divided into three parts. And they do this all the way through. And it's a great blessing, and it's a great Bible study tool for you. If you'll notice, the small letter A right before the word may, you see that? And then there's the B part of the verse right before the word a liar, you see that? And then there's the letter C right before the quote. Now, if you go out into the margin and you look at verse 4, it gives you cross-references for A, B, and C, and in this case, for C, they give you the actual place in the Old Testament where this quotation comes. And where does it come from? Psalm 51, four, exactly. So turn to Psalm 51 for just a moment. And Again, if you're new to the Bible, Psalms are about dead center in your Bible. Just go to the middle of the Bible, and you'll be in the Psalms, and go to Psalm fifty-one. Now, when you come to Psalm 51, you will see a chapter title above the psalm. Here in the New American Standard, it says a contrite sinner's prayer for pardon. That's not inspired. That's just a chapter title. I pulled out a couple of uh, different translations. I pulled out one King James, and the chapter title says, a prayer of repentance. Another King James version done by another publisher said, a prayer for cleansing. Another translation of the Bible says a prayer for restoration. That's not inspired. But the header that you see above this particular psalm is inspired. It says for the choir director, because remember the psalms are hymns that the Jewish people sung. And so this is a note given to people like Matt that they should select a tune that would fit the particular words that are given here. He says a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, that's inspired. And in some versions of the Bible, in fact, in most other languages of the Bible, including in your Hebrew Bible, but you travel to other parts of the world, that's verse 1. And then what we have is verse 1, is verse 2, and so forth. A scandal had taken place, a sexual scandal, and no one knew it. No one but David, no one but Bathsheba, no one but God. And then when God tells it to the prophet Nathan. And nearly a year goes by when David does not confess this sin. For almost a year he had been guilty of unconfessed adultery, unconfessed murder, and unconfessed hypocrisy. And he acted like his life was clean and free and clear until the prophet Nathan comes and raises that bony finger in his face and he says, David, you are the man. And unlike the politicians of our day, he offers no defense. He confesses his sin to God, and that confession is recorded here. Notice the first four verses. He says, be gracious to me, O God. And I love that the New American Standard, unlike many translations have eliminated, they retain the vocative, that word "O." Uh, It it expresses from the original deep emotion. Oh God, from the depth of his soul, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Now verse 4, where the quotation is going to come here in Romans 3. Against you, you only... I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And here's the quotation. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. King David is saying, Oh God, I am guilty. I am a hypocrite. I am an adulterer. I am a murderer. Yes, the filth of my life is before you. But in spite of my sin and in spite of my shame, you still are the same, God. You have not changed one bit. So that Paul can say, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now go back to Romans 3. I want you to see what Paul is doing when he quotes here Psalm 51.4. In essence, he's saying, may it never be the sinfulness of man, though every man be found a liar, the sinfulness of man can never change the faithfulness of God. And by the way, you need to remember that. I need to remember it when we claim verses like 1 John 1, 1.9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is righteous. He's just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from A-double-L, all unrighteousness. That is not an evangelistic verse. It is written to the people of God. It's not telling you how to get saved. It's a verse written to those who are saved that their fellowship, their intimacy with God might continue. And so when God cleanses a believer... It's not based on something in us. It is based on something in Him. It is based on His faithfulness. God remains faithful to forgive, and He can do it in a just and a righteous way because Jesus already paid for it. If I have a million dollars in the bank and I go and present the teller with a check for a hundred, I don't have to beg and plead and cajole to have her meet my request because of what is in my bank accounts. Now, if I have no bank account, I can write a check, but it will be meaningless. And some people are trying to claim 1 John 1, 1.9 when they've never been saved. And they think somehow they're going to be saved by confessing their sin. And you're not saved by confessing your sin. You're saved by your faith in the gospel in Jesus who died, was buried, and was raised again. But while judicially, positionally, all of my sin, past, present, and future have been dealt with, experientially God wants me to know that forgiveness. And so the basis of God cleansing you is not your tears, it's not your pleading, it's not your begging, it's not your earnestness, it's God who in His faithfulness can cleanse you time and time and time again because Jesus paid for it. And of course, according to 1 John 2, 1, this is not a motivation to sin, this is a motivation not to sin. I write these things to you, brethren, that you may not sin. So now, with that spiritual commercial aside, don't miss the point that Paul wants to make here. He's saying that in spite of all of the sin in the nation of Israel, it will not change God's faithfulness one bit. So he asks, what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. God is faithful and just in spite of the lying, wagging tongues of men. Now in verses 5 through 8, he is going to highlight another point, that the faithfulness of God towards Israel does not allow them to escape judgment. So that brings us to the third objection. What about God's... Righteousness. What about God's righteousness? Now, their reasoning, as we'll see here, is a little warped, as the reasoning of most lost people is warped, because without a born again mind, without the mind of Christ, it's difficult to perceive some of God's ways. Verse 5 If our righteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? And Paul says parenthetically, I'm speaking in human terms. The Jew who is arguing with Paul is saying, if my sin gives maximum opportunity for God to demonstrate how righteous he is, then why do you find fault with me? The point they're trying to make, and I know this is meaty, but pay attention, he is saying in essence the more unrighteous the criminal is, the more righteous the judge appears. So how can you blame us? How can God blame us? If our righteousness benefits God because it displaces glory and his character more starkly, then how can God judge us with his wrath? Wouldn't that be unfair? And Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms. I'm speaking in fallen human logic, and it's almost embarrassing for him even to write it. So he denies their logic. Verse 6, may it never be. And he counters their logic with a question. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? To question God's justice is to attack his competence to judge. All right, objection number four. What about God's glory? He further explains their twisted logic now in verse 7. But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory... Why am I also still being judged as a sinner? That is, if through my falsehood and my unfaithfulness, God's truth and faithfulness shines all the more, then how can God possibly judge me? And why not say, verse 8, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim we say, let us do evil that good may come. That's the same kind of faulty reasoning people use today. They use it against pastors like me. They say, okay, Brogy, you teach salvation totally by the grace of God, that it is free, it is unmerited, it can't be earned, it is just humbly received. What you are teaching, they will say, is that you can just get saved and live however you want. And so it's not unusual for pastors who are grace-preaching pastors To be slandered. And that's what these people were doing concerning Paul. They were saying, let's sin all the more by persisting in our unbelief because God's faithfulness is demonstrated all the more and in that he is glorified. And Paul says, that's ridiculous. Sin never displays the righteousness of God. Sin never displays the glory of God. As a matter of fact, these objections just show how depraved and fallen you are. And so he just says, their condemnation is just. They're going to get what they deserve. All right, now very quickly, he steps back now. He's, done, he's dealt with the moralizer. He's dealt with the religious man. He's dealt with the pagan, hardcore idolater. Now he takes the whole human race, and we see an evaluation of the human race from God. Now follow verse 9. What then, he asks, are we better than they? Now, we here refers to the Jews. Some translations will actually interpret it for you. And that's okay because it's a correct interpretation. The problem with doing that is some translations that move from translation to interpretation will sometimes bring their own bias into the text and sometimes interpret things in a way that is not necessarily true. And they're in essence saying you're not smart enough to figure it out for your own, so let us take the place uh, of God for you. Are we, it's just a pronoun, are we, meaning Jews, better than they, meaning non-Jewish people? And Paul says, not at all. Not at all. What do you mean, Paul? You just said in chapter 3 and verse 1 that there was great advantage to being a Jew. Well, again, you need to understand this advantage in terms of privilege, not in terms of favoritism. The Jews, again, were privileged to be keepers of the Scripture, but that did not mean that they could escape the judgment of God. For, he says, we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. No exceptions, no preferences, no favorites, no special cases, because the Supreme Court of all creation has spoken. God is saying through his apostles, I don't care if you're white or black or brown or purple. I don't care if you're Asian, African, or European. Everyone has the same problem. The whole human race has a sin problem. We're under sin. The problem is not a racial problem. The problem is, in essence, a sin problem. It's not an ethnic problem, it's a sin problem. The heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. That's what Paul has been painting. And so now he moves from being an attorney to being a doctor. And like a spiritual uh, surgeon, he cuts us open. And he goes from our, heads all the way, from our head all the way down to our toes. And he does it by stringing together six Old Testament passages, five from the Psalms and one from the book of Isaiah. In verse 13, you might want to circle or underline the body parts. He speaks of our throats, our tongues, and our lips. If you look at verse 14 here, he writes of our mouths. Uh, in verse 16, of our feet. And finally, in verse 18 of our eyes. He demonstrates from these passages that man is totally depraved. Now, unfortunately, the doctrine of depravity, or in more popular terms today, what we call total depravity, is often misunderstood. So what do we mean by total depravity? Does it mean that everyone is just as mean as he can be? No, not at all. You could be meaner if you tried, but please don't try. Has it meant that all human beings are just as wicked and depraved as they could be? No, not all people are drunkards or thieves or murderers or adulterers. But the average person on the street, when they hear total depravity, they think evangelicals are painting a misrepresentation of man, that we're saying that man is as bad as he can be. And that's not what the Bible teaches Experience itself would show that there are many even lost people who are kind and generous and benevolent towards others. The doctrine of total depravity describes that man is as bad off as he can be. There's a big difference between being as bad as you can be and as being as bad off as you can be. The totality of our depravity uh, refers to the extent of our sin, not to the degree of our sin. And so this is important as you think your way through it. You and I have a germ called sin in us that we inherit as we will see when we come to Romans 5 because of our sin in and with Adam. And Paul is going to describe just how bad we are. As the prophet said, the heart of man is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can understand it? There are three people sitting in your seat this morning. The person that you are, the person that you could be if you were totally yielded to the Spirit of God, and the person that you potentially have the capacity to be. If I could take this morning your thoughts, my thoughts, that you had from the time you were a youth up to the present day, forget your deeds, just your thoughts, and I could project them on these screens, a lot of you would never want to show your face in this room again. Well, God is going to describe what man is like. God will say in Genesis eight twenty one, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Hitler was not an anomaly; he was not some phenomena. He is what all of us have the capacity in our fallen Adamic nature to do. The Bible says in Psalm fifty one, you were conceived or you were shaped in iniquity. Jesus said in Matthew 7 11, you, meaning you all, everyone, are evil. That's Jesus' assessment of man. Listen, if you were placed in a certain position, in a certain set of circumstances, there's no telling what you would do.
1: The best we could ever be pales in comparison to the surpassing perfection and holiness of Jesus Christ. That's why it's impossible to have communion with him apart from his grace and his grace alone. To add anything to Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation simply corrupts any chance. For a copy of today's study entitled, The Depravity of Man, call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 or visit our website, searchthescriptures.org, and download program number ROM11. And of course, you can always hear all of Dr. Brogy's messages on the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets. Don't forget our Search the Scriptures trip to Israel has been rescheduled to May 11th through the 21st of next year. But in order to meet all of Israel's security prerequisites, you need to register by February 11th 2022. Get all the details at stsisraeltour.com. Tomorrow we conclude our look at the depravity of man. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.